used to be when I was coaching college baseball, I could just walk on the baseball field and I could say, let's go, and the whole team, those days are long gone, apparently, here, long gone. So some of you got back to your seats, I appreciate that, though, so you're my favorite ones. Hey, we're going to talk about this series we've been working through called Family Matters. And uh, if you remember, we talked about marriage a couple weeks ago, uh, and then we talked about parenting. Um, And this week, we're going to, to some degree, kind of marries the two, um, but we're going to talk about uh, how we shape or how we impact a a generation. And so in just a moment, I want to walk you through a little bit uh, about generations and how the book of Titus speaks to this. But then specifically in our practical time towards the second half of the sermon, I, I want to talk to you specifically about reaching our teens, our younger generation, and how we can be an impact on them, not just as a youth ministry where we hire somebody and say, hey, go down the hall and take care of those teens, but how we do it corporately as a church and how we invest in the life of young people. And so we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. If you have your Bible, turn to uh, Titus, the book of Titus. Um, It's in the New Testament. It's towards the back of the Bible. It'll be on the screen if you don't have your Bible, so you can work through it that way. We're going to look at a a short passage from Titus, chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And it's about a letter to Titus to speak to the church on the island of Crete. And so let me give you a little background uh, of what's going on here, and then we'll talk about how this works towards the topic of the day. You see, uh, Crete is uh, probably there were some believers or there were some Jewish uh, people who were in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. There, Jesus had risen from the dead. He had spoke to his disciples, and then he had ascended into heaven, and he told them to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. The Holy Spirit did come. And we find that the first act of the apostles after the Holy Spirit came is they went out and started to preach the gospel in languages that they didn't know. Amazing supernatural event. And so most likely there were some uh, Jewish folks here who heard this and they went back to the island of Crete. Now, they would have been the minority uh, in Crete because uh, of the Jewish people were spread all over the place. And so you had these small pockets of Jewish believers, believers in the Old Testament everywhere. And now they were hearing the message of Jesus Christ as Peter spoke it. And so they went back and probably formed some type of following of Jesus Christ there in Crete. But we find in Acts chapter 27 that Paul now on one of his missionary journeys actually is an influence on Titus here. That's around A.D. 60 or 62. Now, if you remember, uh, Paul was in prison in Rome just a couple years later. So this is towards the end of his missionary journeys that he had this impact on Titus and on the church now in Crete. So one of the things that Paul would do is he would go around, and when there was a following of believers, he would appoint leaders. That would make sense, right? If you had a pocket of believers, if you had a church forming, then you want to kind of appoint a leader, and you're going to speak to the leaders about what they might ought to do. So here, what we find here in Crete is something's going on. In fact, if you read the book of Titus, now you could actually go home today and you could read it because it's three chapters long. And then when somebody asks you, hey, what'd you do today? Say, I read a book. And they'll be, wow, you're a fast reader. You don't have to tell them it's just three chapters. But that's the book of Titus. In the book of Titus, you're going to find that there is like, there's this negative influence on the church from the culture around them. And the church is being influenced in such that they are looking very similar to the culture around them, which prompts Paul 
to write this book. In fact, there's three books right in a row, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, and they all have a very similar theme, preaching about what should the church be like, what should your behavior be like, what should your belief system be like, all three of these books. Let's take a pause for just a second. Do you understand what Paul is saying? I think more direct than just subtle. Paul is saying, look, when your culture does not line up to the ways of God, you don't conform to your culture. You create culture. You let God's word create culture for you. And you follow. And even though it might be counterculture to what you're living in, God says there that, well, I'll honor you. I'll lift you up. I'll, I'll help create your community for you by following my ways. So Paul, an apostle, a vessel of, of God, is writing to Timothy, telling them, look, don't conform to this culture around you, but live the ways of God. And now let me line out for you what those are. And he does that in the book of Titus, at least, in just three chapters here. It's what we find. Now, what is the culture around him? Uh, In Crete, they had a little bit different understanding. They believed that that Zeus was a human who was born right there in uh, in their culture, and that Zeus became a god or became divine because of his good works or because of his works for humanity that eventually he was elevated to a divine status. Not only did they believe this, but this started to become a belief system for the average person. That if you were to live good enough and you were uh, good for humanity and a blessing and, and, and help and worthy then you could yourself be elevated to a divine status. Now, some of you might sit here and go, well, that's kind of, a, kind of a weird thought, right? It's really similar to how many people think about God and about the Bible. They think the better people, the better I live, then the higher status I will earn one day in heaven. The worse I am, then the lower status and or I'm going, you know, down to hell and I'll never be in heaven. And that's kind of our mentality. But the Bible actually says we're all sinners. Like we're all already worthy of eternity without God. But through Jesus Christ, he makes us worthy. That he is like our advocate on behalf of us to argue for our innocence. And so that's the message of the gospel. Paul is now writing and letting them know here, look, this, this thought that you have on how you're going to become gods, that doesn't really work. In fact, there was another thing at work here in Crete. It was this, that even though good works for humanity was a very important things because it earns you divine status, you could really do whatever you want and interpret anything however you want as long as you just didn't bother or hurt anyone. Shortened version to say, if it's right for you, go ahead and do it. Just don't hurt anyone. And then you're elevated as you bless other people. Very similar to our thought in our culture. That is postmodern thinking right there. The same thing is going on. And Paul is writing this now, a more orderly account to let them know, here is how you should operate. Here is how the church should operate. And in doing this, he is establishing a Christian culture with the people in Crete. He appoints leaders, we find, as one of the themes of the book of Titus. He talks about conduct in our households, and then he talks about conduct in society as well. And he is talking to all of these in the context of the church. 
So church today, I want to just kind of walk through and talk through some of this, specifically as it relates to how we influence those younger than us, or those who may be our kids, or those who are our next generation who are raising up to take over our roles. So maybe you know that uh, there is a, a very popular generation called millennials, right? Um, millennials, if you're older than a millennial, don't usually get a good reputation. Um, if you are a millennial, then of course you have a great reputation. Uh, well, that's not really our, our case to, to walk through that, but did you know, millennials, that you have now graduated from college as far as around the cutoff years of what it means to be a millennial? You've moved on. You've aged out of that school range now. So you're like full-blown adults out there in life doing your thing. All millennials, that's where it goes. About 22 years old uh, is the low end of millennials now. So what does that mean about our teens? Well, you may have heard the the phrase uh, Generation AO or Always Online, uh, meaning that this new generation, as they're seeking a title, uh, their first thought was, this generation is always plugged in. They've never not known being online their whole life. When my mom used to call at 8 o'clock in the morning, she would say, in the summertime, she would say, you need to be downstairs answering the phone at 8 o'clock in the morning because you're not going to sleep all summer. Um, Well, now that would mean I just pick up the phone in my bed and say, yep, mom, I'm up. All right. Well, you right remember, that was a corded telephone that I had to walk downstairs to use. Now, when we got the cordless telephone, I'm telling you, we were, you know, that, we were the Jetsons at, at our house when we got that. Always online. But uh, research has actually settled on the title now, Generation Z. I'm not sure where we go after Z. Um, in some seating sections and arena, it goes back to AA, BB. So maybe they go that. I don't know what they'll do after that. Generation Z. You know, Generation Z is who we're talking about now, late elementary, junior high, high school, into college. That's what we're talking about. So, like, already you can kind of look around and you, like, you know who we're talking about here. We're looking around. Um, Can I tell you that uh, it's too young to really know what this generation is and what they're all about? Now, some of your parents are like, well, I'll tell you. (laughs) So, you know, simmer down. We don't need to hear that. Um, But this generation, there's incredible hope for them. It's incredible hope for this generation because they think already and process already about future, about future. And that is a key component that they're not just thinking about now, they're already thinking about future. Now that might be because uh, millennials didn't do that as much or uh, us um, didn't do that as well. And so therefore they're looking and go, I don't want to do that. Um, And they're thinking, I don't know what the reason is, but there's great hope. Let me tell you what Titus has to say now, or excuse me, Paul has to say to Titus as it talks about shaping generation. Take a look, Titus chapter 2, verse 1 through 8. Your job is to speak out on the things that make for solid doctrine. Did you know that in the church world, solid doctrine is still important? That means what we believe is still important. And if we believe one thing about one thing, it probably progresses or leads us to having to believe to another thing about another thing. It's called systematic theology. And here we find that Paul is saying to to Titus, your job is to speak out. Make sure you have good, sound, solid doctrine. Guide older men in lives of temperance, dignity, and wisdom into healthy faith, love, and endurance. 
guide older women into lives of reverence so they end up as neither gossips nor drunks, but models of goodness. By looking at them, the younger women will know how to love their husband and children, be virtuous and pure, keep a good... Did you know that in the Bible, in the New Testament, almost every time it uses the word pure, it is talking about being sexually pure. It's a very important theme throughout the New Testament for men and women to be sexually pure, we find there. Keep a good house, be good wives. Uh, We don't want anyone looking down on God's message because of their behavior. Key verse there. Also, guide the young men to live disciplined lives, but mostly show them all this by doing it yourself, incorruptible in your teaching, your words, solid and sane. Then anyone who is dead set against us when he finds nothing weird or misguided, might eventually come around. You know, in my thinking, I've started a couple of these passages, and you can do so in your sermon notes if you want. One is there, we don't want anyone looking down on God's message because of their behavior. Can I just talk uh, for a second uh, where we're at and where we think culturally? And I want to tell you, I'm not talking culturally as if I'm just blaming U.S. culture. I'm talking about us as the church, as believers, We have gotten to the point where we actually disassociate our heart and our behavior. Where there are actually two different things. Now we're going to talk more about this in just a second. But can can I tell you that anytime we disconnect my heart for something and my behavior for something, we have inconsistencies in our life. And we send a very confusing message to people. Example, if I am very passionate in my heart about taking the trash out in my house, but I never actually do it. Inconsistency. And the house stinks, right? We'll talk more about that in just a second. Second thing I start, it says, show them by doing this it yourself, incorruptible in your teaching. You know, I think most of us as parents, we don't actually use the phrase, we don't actually tell people, hey, look, our, our kids... Um, do what I say, not what I do. I, I don't think, I think we've gotten smart enough that we don't verbalize that. But sometimes we live it out that way. Sometimes when they're looking at us and they're like, I know they've been teaching us this, but they don't do it themselves. And Paul is saying very clearly here to, to Titus, you got to do it yourself. That's the number one model. So let's take a look at this as, as we shape a generation, as we specifically look at our teens, those who we would call in our church Generation Z or those who God has put in our sphere of influence, what do we need to do? We shape a generation when we decide to do, number one, uh, when we are godly examples. We're godly examples. Now you might go, uh, well that's pretty simple. I don't know if there's more profound way to say it than to be godly examples. Anything we want somebody under us to be, if you're the boss, if you're the teacher, if you're the parent, if you're the instructor, whatever, you've got to do it yourself. Now, you don't have to be phenomenal at it yourself. I teach my son as much baseball as I can, but as a high school senior, he's better than I was as a high school senior. Um, And as a 44-year-old, he's definitely better than I am right now. Uh, But you've got to do what you teach When it comes spiritually, we've got to be godly examples to what we do. If I want to teach my two-year-old how important it is not to lie, and yet my two-year-old already picks up on when I lie, I got trouble from two years on because I haven't been a godly example. 
When I become a teenager and I start pushing on my teens to be a blessing to others and to serve other people and to care for other people and that ravens need to do this, and yet they don't see their father ever doing that. We got a problem with our teenager. In fact, it sets a tone for a lot of their life. Here's what the book of Second Peter has to say in it. Be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care, serving as overseers. Not because you must, but because you're willing as God wants you to. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Being examples. He gives a couple of examples there, uh, the, the money part and the serving a lot, lording over. But you could have a list of 12 more examples if you want. But the, the point is just as simple, that we have to be examples to someone else. Uh, about four years ago, maybe five years ago now, I met a guy uh, at a conference who has been an example to me of somebody who shares God's word and shares it pretty straight, um, but loves people in the same process. In fact, there's sometimes he, he shares it so straight, I'm like, how does he get away with that? Um, and it's usually because of the way he loves people on top of that. He's been an example to me. Now, he's sitting right over here. His name's Kevin O'Connor. You've got to hear him preach every once in a while uh, here at the church and will a couple times this summer. Um, but could you imagine if instead Kevin took the time to talk to me about how I should preach or how I should pe- speak to people or how I should love people? And then when I looked at him, I go, man, he teaches me that, but he's kind of a jerk, you know, he's kind of a jerk to people. And when I hear him preach, you know, he's kind of a wimp preacher, never really preaches the truth. I just wouldn't be interested in what he has to say. Godly example. So a couple things uh, here that I wrote down and want to share with you this morning. Be an example by your priorities. Have you ever asked yourself what your priorities are? What are your priorities in life? What are your time priorities? What are your money priorities? What are your relational priorities in your life? In fact, what if you did this for a week? What if you said, I'm not allowed to say, I don't have time and I don't have money? for that, or that's too expensive, or, you know, I'm too busy. What if you weren't allowed to say that? What if instead, in all of those situations where it pertain to spending money or spending time, you had to say, that's not a priority for me? Like when somebody, you know, say, hey, can you come swing by the party? Ah, we're just so busy, you know, I don't think we're going to say, you know, it's really not a priority for us. It, it would be the, the truth, but doesn't it come off uh, come off making us think a little different on things. Because really for everything we do with our time and with our money, we prioritize. We prioritize where it's going to fit in. We talked a little bit about this last week when it comes to like being in church. We prioritize. And it's not like most of us would say, yeah, it's just IHOP's got such a good special on pancakes this morning. I just would rather be there. I mean, most of us really don't say that. It's usually a seemingly legit reason it just takes priority. And maybe it's the same way uh, in serving somebody or helping somebody and loving somebody. What are your priorities? You're an example to your kids. You're an example to this generation by what you do with your priorities. Be an example with your behavior. Talked about it a little bit ago, but did you know that the behavior is the revealer of the heart? That's the truth. What you do, how you behave reveals your heart. So you can try to explain to us all you want or to your spouse or to your kids um, or I can explain all I want on why that's not my heart. But the interpretation of the heart will come from our behavior. Now, sometimes we can have the right behavior because we keep 
telling ourselves, I have to do this, I have to do this, and our heart's not in it at all. That happens sometimes. But if your heart is in it, if God has captured your heart for something, your behavior will follow. Really, do we ever say, I'm passionate in my heart about this, and behavior never follows? Third one there is be an example by your spirituality. Your spirituality. That means how you love the Lord, how you live out your Christian life. And what does it look like, your time with God? And what does it look like when, when God has spoke to you or called you to something, and how do you say yes to that? What does it look like when you're seeking God? You're on a journey, and you know God is speaking to you and calling you. Here's a quote I want you to know. Until one clearly sees Christ in you, your words have little effect. Meaning that when people see Jesus Christ in you, when they see that your, your Christian walk, your spiritual journey is a priority to you, they want to listen to your words. And our teens are, are no different. This generation is, is no different. They want to see it in you first. In fact, I would say far too long they've heard our words without seeing, seeing this example. Hey, the second thing this morning is to invest in the lives of teens. Investing in their lives. So we can be an example, but we're talking now about an intentional investing in their lives. Here's what the, the book of Psalms says. Oh, my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, what we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, and the wonders he has done. You know what? When we look at this, investing in someone, investing in anything, it takes something from us. We have to give something away of us before we invest. If you want to invest in some stocks this afternoon, uh, probably you won't do it without putting your cash up, right? Um, It just doesn't work that way. If this week you'd like to invest in the community garden, probably that means you're going to get down there and dig in the dirt and spend some time that way. It always costs us something to invest. Can I just tell you, because I have teens in my house every Wednesday night for youth program. I was a youth pastor for 16 years before moving on to baseball and then coming here. Teens are well worth your investment. Well worth. Can I tell you about Danny Rachin? Danny Rachin was a teen that showed up as a 10th as a grader to youth group. And the very first night, he came forward afterwards and said, you know, I think I'm ready to become a Christian. I threw me because usually, you know, it's a, it's a process and it's a journey. Um, but he was ready to go that first night. So I prayed with him that first night. And I would lie to you if I didn't say I had a little bit of like, eh, we'll see how this sticks. We'll see where this goes from here. But if God didn't get a hold of Danny and do something amazing... That boy just kept growing and growing and growing in the Lord. A few years later, he went on to uh, Arizona, uh, University of Arizona. And that is the tough time, folks, because 75% of teens fall away from their faith or at least fall away from church during their college years. And he was going to a non-Christian college, and I was a little nervous about it. But if that boy didn't go down to Arizona get plugged in with a, a Christian group on campus and then go down the road and got plugged into a church of about 80 people, got to know them, got involved in community, started learning, and for four years was mentored by a pastor, even at a large uh, non-Christian university. 
And then I got the call one day uh, that Danny was going to go to Washington, D.C. to work. In fact, uh, I know he told me what he did, but um, I wasn't allowed to actually know really what he did because he's kind of like a top secret type of job. He works on computers and intelligence and this kind of stuff. Um, and I got a little nervous. I'm like, ah, Washington, D.C. You know, this is, it's a fairly secular town. Um, in fact, churches are always trying to get in and launch churches in Washington, D.C. that would reach a different generation of people. And so I got a little nervous. But that boy, if he didn't connect to this little Presbyterian church around the corner from where he worked and plugged in there and got to know the pastor and got mentored and loved on by that, and if that boy didn't eventually marry that pastor's daughter. um, In fact, I got to go up to uh, Washington and do the wedding for them. And then they got on a plane, and guess what? He got transferred to England. Now, if you know England, that is secular, as secular as it gets. Um, there's some revival happening in London, um, but, but Europe is not the most dominant Christian nation anymore. And I got nervous for him again. But did you know what? He got involved in a church planning movement where they're at. Part of a church plant. They've gone from about 14 to nearly 100 people in this church plant in the last three or four or five years, however long it's been. That's what God does in the life of our teens. But we have to be willing to invest. We have to be willing to be part of that journey to see it happen. So here's three quick things. Invest your experience. What have you learned? What's God's taught you? What gifting has God put in that? Invest that into someone else. Uh, if you're one that, man, you, you're good with your hands, woodworking or, or building a construction, and you just recognize there's a young teen that, wow, you could really build into, and they're showing an interest in that, invest your experience. Invest your time. I'd love to tell you you can invest in any of this and not give up your time, but it's impossible. You've got to invest time. This is the stifling moment for most of us. Our heart gets captivated. We're willing. We even put together a plan. But as time gets going, man, it hurts our week, right, to sacrifice and give up time. The benefit is well worth it. Invest your life as well, meaning let them get to know you. Let them get to know your family. Connect on a, on a deeper level. Where it's appropriate, be vulnerable and share uh, personal uh, as well. Always, of course, where that's appropriate. Hey, finally, um, this is an important one. Recognize that teens are fragile. They're fragile. No matter how hard and strong they come off, uh, whether it's an 18-year-old or whether it's an, uh, a 12-year-old that's about to become 13, or right now we have four fifth graders who are about to bounce up to our sixth grade group. And can I tell you, I still look at these fifth graders sometime and I'm like, they were kindergartners when I showed up here. I can't imagine they're about to come into my house to be, to be middle schoolers. I'm sure, I know, some parents are freaking out. Uh, that's about to happen. They're all fragile. They're fragile. It's an awkward, weird time during the teen years. There's so much to navigate the moment you step foot on a high school or middle school campus to try to figure out. It's tough. In fact, um, TC, of course, is my middle son, um, who is our, he is our creative one, right? And so he was going to this party, and it was a dress-up party, one of those murder mystery kind of parties, and they were all emailed a name, and this is what, this is what your character is. So he got a character, and uh, he he started going at it with a costume. And, and uh, for the most part, we try to, like many of you, we try to pull out of our closets for costumes before we're running down and buying. And so he went from room to room um, 
and started to scrounge from all of our closets putting together this costume. And I thought it ended up pretty good. It was a pretty cool uh, looking costume. And so we went to this party and I was really proud of him. He didn't spend a dollar. He put together this, this. And as we, we pulled up, we pulled up right with another kid as well. And we were a, a bit early. And that kid got out of the car. TC got out of his car. And the first thing I heard that kid say, who was decked out? I'm telling you, he had a cape on. His hair was blue and up. And it was, it was pretty impressive. I mean, he was well decked out. But the first thing he said, he looked at TC and he said, oh, man, you got to step up your game. As a parent, do you know what I wanted to do? I wanted to get out of the car, and I wanted to sock that 16-year-old in the face. <laughs> you Because know? teens are fragile, right? And that's what I was thinking. You know, my, my, my rough TC, who played center for football, is fragile. And that's what teens are, and we need to remember that. And so as we care for them, as we love them, as we look after them, as we think about our words, we have to remember that... God loves them so much, and God is caring for them in a special way during their teen years. Here's what the book of Psalms said, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. It doesn't feel like that long ago where I remember those teen years. I remember the time kind of being heartbroken to some degree in different times, uh, feeling like expectations weren't met, feeling like, how do I behave? How do I act? How do I even begin to call this girl on the phone? How do I, I mean, all those kind of things, right? It's awkward. There's a book by Chap Clark, if you're really interested in this topic uh, of, of teens, especially the fragile side, one of the most powerful youth ministry books I've ever read. It's called Hurt by Chap Clark. It's a powerful book. It so made an impact on me on what might be rolling through the mind of a teen in as simple of an atmosphere of when we say, all right, everyone stand up, we're going to play this game. Well, that's pretty simple, right? A youth, that's, youth pastors do that all the time. But Chap Clark starts to walk through the fragileness of teen lives, the fragileness of the teen, of the, the teen girl who is new to her menstrual cycle that you're making stand up in that atmosphere. All of those type of things. Teenage years is awkward. And teens need us to love them and bless them and be with them during those teen years and to care for them. And in that, we make a significant impact on this generation. Within that, what we're doing is exactly what Paul is telling Titus to do. Create Christian community. Create community with these teens. Because if we don't, guess what's going to happen? Exactly what Paul is writing against. They're just going to get caught in the current flow of the culture around them. And they'll just be swept away. And so I want to encourage you, uh, join me. It may not be that you should be on staff with the youth on Wednesday nights. It may, that just may not be the best thing for you. Maybe it is, and you need to sign up. It'd be awesome. But there's some way you can impact the teens. Some way. And so I ask that you would pray about it. The bottom line is this, though. I believe this. Whether you're on a youth staff somewhere or not, whether you have teens in your house, it really takes the whole church to shape a generation. It would take everyone blessing our young people and being involved in their life. So this morning, here's what I want to do. I want to pray for you, and I want to specifically pray for our teens. Um, teens, I won't so embarrass you to make you stand up. So... Um, but I just want to lift you up and pray for you. And then I want to pray for those out here who are like, man, I've never even considered like 
trying to invest time or energy in my experience in the life of a teenager, and, and they're all around us right here at church. I want to pray for you because the Lord might be tapping on your heart this morning. So let me pray for you. Lord, uh, this morning, I want to lift up every teen here. Lord, uh, really everyone in the generation we talked about, so younger than teen and all the way through teenage years. Lord, those, the awkward years. But Lord, these teens are precious. I mean, they're just such a joy and so much fun to hang out with on Wednesday night and to see them interact. And Lord, there's so many times where I, I look at what they do and I go, I have no understanding, Lord. But they're a blessing and you love them dearly. And Lord, because of that, uh, we love them. And we want to invest in them and impact them. Father, can I pray for the teens that may, uh, may have awkward times socially? They're trying to figure that out. Relationships and connections, whether with friends or family. Lord, I pray your word would be a witness to them, would teach them. I pray for those around them that you would be impacting them and speaking to other people's hearts as well. Lord, for all the things that are happening and changes that are happening physiologically and, and, Lord, emotionally and all of that, Father, would you just know, help those teens know how just passionate you are and how passionate we are for them as well. And though, Lord, as parents and, and even leaders, we, we're still figuring it out sometimes what to tell them and how to care for them. Father, could it show through that we love them? And then, Father, for those adults that are sitting here, maybe parents, maybe leaders, or maybe people that have never had any thought of impacting the life of a teenager, Father, could this morning, however you are saying it, however you're leading and prompting, it could be as simple as somebody this morning saying, I'm going to be the financial backer for the youth ministry program. Or maybe this morning you're saying, you know, I I need to investigate how to sign up and, and to help with the youth, to help with activities or whatever it may be. Or maybe this morning you're like, I don't think I'll be with the teens, but I'm going to commit to just sitting during youth group on Wednesday night at my house and praying for the teens. Whatever it is God's put on your heart, would you follow that this morning? And Lord, we thank you the way you speak. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen. Well, amen. Teens, thank you. So for being a blessing to us and uh, and we'll, uh, we'll follow God as he's asked us to be a blessing to you as well. Well, we're going to do uh, our tithes and offerings. So if you filled out your card this morning or if you want to scroll